This is the Feasible Hand, a podcast about organizations, economics, and management. My name is Jordi Blanesi Vidal, and I am an associate professor at the Department of Management, London School of Economics. My guest today is Barbara Biasi, who is an assistant professor of economics at the Yale School of Management and a faculty research fellow at the MBR. Today, we're going to talk about her paper, Flexible Wages, Bargaining, and the Gender Gap, with Heather Sarsons. Hello, Barbara. Welcome to the program. Hi. Barbara, can you start by telling us what is the gender gap? So the gender gap is a difference in outcomes, and typically we look at labor market outcomes between men and women. In this paper, we're particularly interested in the gender wage gap, which is or suggests the difference in the pay or the compensation of male and female workers. And having a big gender gap is a bad thing because you are paying people differently when they are equally productive. Is that correct? So from an efficiency, from an equality perspective, having a gender gap is a bad thing. It is a bad thing, actually. And I think a lot also depends on whether we are talking about a conditional gender gap or an unconditional gender gap. The unconditional gender wage gap is just a simple, raw difference in the average wages of male and female workers, regardless of their occupation, their industry, the number of hours that they work, and so on. Whereas when we talk about conditional gender wage gaps, what we have in mind is comparing male and female workers who are very, very similar. For example, they work the same amount of hours, they are in the same job, they are in the same industry, and so on. And so the unconditional gender wage gap tells us on average how different the compensation of men and women is. The conditional gender gap tells us how much less or how differently are almost identical male and women workers paid. One of the things that we condition in that conditional gender gap will be some proxies for the productivity of these male and female workers, correct? That is correct. Very often when we look at estimates of the gender wage gap that we see, for example, in the press, productivity is is usually not taken into account because productivity is typically very, very hard to measure, especially if we are comparing people across different occupations, across different sectors. But ideally, we would want to condition for for productivity when we think about the gender gap. So what are the potential explanations for why we observe a gender gap in the economy? I think there's a number of of explanations that have been proposed. One of them, maybe the most obvious one, is the fact that men and women tend to select into different types of jobs, sometimes across different industries, but often even within a single industry. It's something that has emerged from the literature, a literature that has been pioneered by Claudia Golden, is uh, that women have uh, much stronger preference for jobs whose hours are more flexible. Those jobs typically uh, tend to pay less, or very often what happens is that the, the wage schedule with respect to hours is not linear in the sense that uh, the value of an additional hour in terms of, uh, of wages is much bigger if we move from, um, say, the 60th to the 61st hour of the week, as opposed to the 
20th or, or the 30th to the 31st hour of the week, which means that uh, the fact that women uh, sometimes, you know, because of preferences and, you know, because of family obligations and social norms are not able to put in as many hours as men ends up penalizing them a lot, especially in jobs that require workers to work very long hours. So that would be the first explanation. Any other explanations? I think this is one of the most compelling things that have been at least identified in the literature. However, there are others on which there is probably relatively more scant evidence. And these are things like discrimination, which simply means differential treatment for no particular good reason of male and female workers in the labor market, or as we identify and discuss in our paper, differences in the way that men and women engage in wage negotiations with their employer, which is in turn going to affect the outcomes in terms of their pay. So the the process or the outcomes of bargaining with uh, your employer will be one potential explanation for this gender gap, and this is the one which you focus on this paper. What is the actual setting in which you study this question? So the setting in which we study this question is public school teachers. And in particular, we study public school teachers in the state of Wisconsin. This is not by chance. We selected this group of workers because Wisconsin underwent a particularly large reform in 2011 called Act 10, which essentially changed the rules of the game for collective bargaining for all public sector workers. But it ended up disproportionately affecting teachers and in particular, the way that teachers pay is And what happened in practice is that while prior uh, to this reform, the pay of public school teachers was very rigid and only determined on the basis of their seniority and education, which, by the way, is what happens in the majority of states, after the reform, districts acquire the flexibility of adjusting the pay of of each teacher on an individual basis, in principle to uh, be able to pay more, um, say, more talented teachers or teachers that were a better fit for the particular students that that each district was serving. But uh, what is important for our purposes is that um, the, the reform essentially opened up the possibility for individual negotiations between the school district, which you should think of as the employer in this context, and the teachers. So before 2010, the wages of public school teachers were determined by collective bargaining agreements and therefore by very rigid rules that could make wages depend only on seniority and the education or credentials of the teachers. That must mean that by definition, there cannot be a wage gap there because those agreements did not explicitly (laughs) specify that men should be paid more than women, correct? So the wage gap there was zero. That is exactly right. If we just compare the average wage of male and female teachers prior to Act 10, which in this setting you should think of as the unconditional wage gap, gender wage gap, as I defined it at the beginning, you do see a little bit of a gap. But then once you control, you take into account uh, um, teachers' experience, education, which means whether they uh, do or do not have a master's degree, and their teaching assignments, so whether they're teaching, you know, math versus English or elementary school versus high school, once you take all these things into account, you see a gender gap that is exactly equal to zero, as it should be. And then at some point, disagreements were removed, flexibility was introduced, and that obviously is going to benefit the best qualified teachers, but it is also going to benefit those teachers who are most willing or better able 
to negotiate their salaries. And that opens now suddenly the door for different groups to be treated differently on average, even while having the same seniority or credentials. That is correct. You are correct in saying that the uh, introduction of flexibility indeed led to a situation in which teachers who are better, as far as we can see based on test scores, which are the primary outcome that people look at in, in this context, teachers who are better end up getting paid more under flexible pay. But what is also true is that um, the way that wages are set in under this new scenario benefits those teachers who are more willing to go to their employer and say, hey, you should give me a raise, otherwise I'm going to leave. And as it turns out, those people tend to be disproportionately more likely to be men. So you can think of the introduction of these flexible pays as some type of shock or natural experiment, if you want, that affected this like stagnant environment and, and open the difference for you to observe the evolution of wages for different groups. That is correct. We exactly use the introduction of flexible pay as a quasi-experiment to identify the effects of, of at least giving districts the possibility of setting pay more flexibly on the gender gap. And what's particularly nice or useful about this reform is that the specific point in time in which districts became able to use this flexibility was different across different districts. And this was the case because the collective bargaining agreement that districts had signed with the corresponding teacher union prior to the reform, so before 2011, remained binding until their expiration, even if the expiration was after uh, the passage of the reform, the passage of Act 10. And it turns out that there is quite a bit of variation across different districts in when these agreements were expiring due to things that have to do with districts being on different negotiation calendars and having been on different negotiation calendars for a very long period of time, which makes us quite comfortable in taking them as quasi-random. So you have this shock that affected every district, but the timing at which a district was affected is based on the uh, previous timing of the, the previous collective bargaining agreement or the decision to extend it or not, things that you will think are orthogonal to how the wages of males and females are evolving in the local areas or other considerations that could affect wages. That's correct. I guess that in addition to having a nice natural experiment, one reason to do a study on Wisconsin is that you are able to get data on the Wisconsin public school system. What type of data do you use? We use data that comes from employment records of all public school uh, teachers in the state of Wisconsin. This is data that is collected by the Wisconsin uh, Department of Public Instruction, and it's actually data that is publicly available for accountability reasons. It's data that include teachers' names, as it turns out, their number of years of experience, their level of education, namely whether they have a bachelor's degree or a master's degree, or in some cases, a PhD. It includes information on which school each teacher is working in in each particular year, which grades they're teaching, which subject, and importantly for us, it includes their total compensation for the year. You also have, obviously, information on the length of the collective bargaining agreements in order to exploit that variation that you were describing earlier. 
That's right. And that is actually information that was not readily available from the Department of Public Instruction as it was for the teacher's records, but it's a data set that we assembled almost by hand. So we went out and we looked for either the collective bargaining agreements that districts had signed before the reform. This uh, ended up being more difficult than we had anticipated going into this project because 2011 is almost 10 years. Actually, it is 10 years ago. Um, so these agreements are now a little bit old. So we had to do a little bit of work in order to find them. And in some cases, we also relied on newspaper articles as well as uh, kind of write-ups or minutes of the meetings of each school district uh, board, which happen periodically and also, you know, talk about the collective bargaining agreement. So we had to combine it information from different sources. In some cases, we had to digitize it, but we were uh, at the end able to put together this additional data set. You say that you also have measures of productivity. Clearly, being able to measure productivity is important when you want to make the unconditional waste gap conditional. So what is the main measure of productivity for teachers and how do you calculate it? Yeah, so one additional reason for looking at teachers or for studying this question, focusing on teachers, is that we have, as you are bringing up, a measure of productivity. It's not a perfect measure of productivity, but it's better than nothing. That's how I usually think about it. And the measure of productivity that we use is teachers' value add, which can be defined as the individual teacher's effect on the growth in achievement of the students measured by test scores. Once all the other observable determinants of achievement, think of things like students' demographics or uh, even their test scores in the prior year, once all of these things have been taken into account, the measure is essentially based on a production function of uh, students' achievement in which the identity, if you will, the teacher is one of the factors. And uh, that can be estimated combining uh, information on where the teachers are teaching in each particular year with uh, the test scores of the students. So you use the rotation of the teachers across different students to differentiate the teacher fixed effects from other things. But in that measure, do you have individual fixed effects or it is it would be like a bit overkill to put individual fixed effects in that type of regression? So we could put it and it would affect our measures a little bit, but it wouldn't completely change them. We have, it's classic robustness that we have done. In the final measure that we use in the paper, we don't have them. We have test scores in of the, that same student in the prior year, which take into or sort of capture a lot of that variation that the student fixed effects also capture. But if we were to re-estimate our measure using student fixed effects instead, we would get something that is very highly correlated to the measure that we use in the Okay, the first examination, I guess, is going to be, well, how does the gender gap appear or whether there is a gender gap that appears once it is allowed to appear by the removal of these very rigid structures. What is the baseline empirical strategy that you use to study this emergence of our gender wage gap? So because we have um, different districts introducing flexible pay at different points in time, the most natural empirical specification uh, for this type of setting is an event study, which essentially normalizes the point in which the policy change takes place in each district to, um, say, zero, and calculates the conditional gender wage gap in the years immediately preceding and immediately following that policy change. And so this is, in fact, our main empirical strategy. 
And in particular, we calculate the gender gap in a window of 10 years around each expiration of the collective bargaining agreements. And what we see is a conditional gender wage gap that is on a completely flat trend. And in fact, it is it essentially does not change in the five years preceding the introduction of flexible pay in each district. Once flexible pay is introduced, the gender gap starts to slowly increase in the sense that women start to earn less and less than comparable observationally identical men. And five years after each expression, which is you know as far out as we can go, given the data that we have, what we see is that women end up making about 1% less than their male counterparts. So the baseline regression has obviously wages on the left-hand side. And then, as you just said, it's an event study or an event analysis. So you interact the gender of the teacher with every year before and after the district of the teacher switches from the rigid to the flexible system. And then you say that prior to that shock, obviously the wages of males and females are evolving in the same way. After that, they start to diverge. I guess that one possibility would be that men, for whatever reason, have characteristics that are suddenly more valued in a flexible system than in a rigid system. But your regression accounts for this. Can you tell us how you account for you know, this potential confounder in, in your regression itself? This is a super important point, so I'm glad to clarify it. The regression has the ultimate goal of capturing exactly the conditional gender gap. And by conditional, what I mean is that we exactly want to take into account the effect of all the observable characteristics of each teacher that we have in our data on on wages. And in particular, what we control for is years of experience in the most flexible way that you can think of. We just have fixed effects for each number of years of experience. We interact that with indicators for each teacher's highest education degree. Typically, we have teachers with a bachelor's degree, with a master's degree, and some of them uh, also have a PhD. So we allow for the the effect of years of experience to be nonlinear and also to differ depending on whether the teacher has a bachelor's degree versus graduate degree. On top of that, we also allow for the effects of experience interacted with education to vary before and after the passage of the reform. The idea there, there is to allow for the return to experience or for the extent to which experience or education for that matter, are rewarded to vary um, uh, before and after the passage of the reform, exactly because the reform essentially changed the way that the pace setting uh, process happened. So we want to, we think that allowing for this heterogeneity is also important. On top of this, we also control for a teacher's teaching assignment. That is, where is she teaching? What grades and what subject? And we uh, allow also for the effects of the teaching assignment on wages to differ depending on whether we are before or after uh, the reform for the same reasons that I just explained. And the idea there is to capture the fact that, you know, it, it might be the case that perhaps we want to, or districts want to increase the wages of high school math teachers because high school math teachers are uh, a scarce resource because they have a higher outside option. And, you know, math high school teachers happen to be disproportionately more likely to be men. You know, the gender gap could be driven by that, but we account for that. So, you know, we can safely say that that our estimates of the gender gap do not depend on the fact that male and female teachers may be teaching different grades or different subjects. 
So at this point, we know that gender gap has emerged, but we still don't know within the context of Wisconsin in these years, what are the potential explanations uh, for the emergence of, of this uh, gender gap? What type of explanations do you have in mind after you look at this baseline finding? Yeah, so when we saw these results, we had a couple you know, potential explanations in our mind that we wanted to test. The primary explanation, which in a sense also motivated our project from the beginning, was this idea of the bargaining divide. That is um, the hypothesis that male and female teachers or male and female workers more generally might have different attitudes towards bargaining or even you know, bargain in a different way. And this is something that is particularly difficult to test using just administrative data, because of course the employment records of public school teachers in Wisconsin don't tell us whether a teacher has negotiated with their district or not. And so we had to go a little bit more in depth and to, to go one step further and to get a little bit more information on bargaining attitudes and behaviors of, of the teachers, what we decided to do was to run a survey. And we did this by contacting via email all teachers in Wisconsin. We collected their email addresses from the websites of the districts, which often make this information public. And we invited the teachers to a very, very short and confidential survey on an online platform. So something very, very easy uh, to complete. And we asked them a battery of questions related to their experience negotiating either with their previous employer or with the, their current employer at different points in time, and in particular at the beginning of their work relationship or any time after the work relationship. To the teachers that told us that they did, in fact, negotiate with their employer, we asked them whether they thought that the negotiation was successful to get a sense as to, you know, whether the outcome of the negotiation was at least perceived in different ways among male and female teachers. To the teachers that told us that they did not negotiate their pay with their employer, we asked them why. We gave them five possible explanations for why they did not uh, negotiate. One was, I did not feel comfortable negotiating. Another one was, I am afraid of backlash. I um, thought that negotiating was not possible. I thought that negotiating was um, uh, was useless. And, uh, and so this, this additional question allows us to kind of understand the reasons behind the choice of potentially not negotiating from the perspective of the teacher. We also ask teachers about their uh, intent, their future intentions as far as negotiating is concerned. And in this specific question, we ask teachers not just about the, the likelihood of future negotiations over pay, but also over other aspects of their job. And in particular, we ask them about the likelihood of negotiating their classroom assignment, which uh, seems to be an attribute of the job that teachers typically care about. And the other aspect is non-teaching duties. Think about things like extracurricular activities or uh, sort of overtime work. In addition to this question specifically uh, related to negotiation and bargaining, we also ask teachers uh, questions related to whether they know other people in their school or in their group of colleagues who have negotiated their pay, whether they know how much their colleagues are making. And we also try to get at, the, at some proxy for the bargaining ability of, this, of each teacher by asking them to agree or disagree with statements like, I am comfortable talking to people I don't know, I 
I can read people's feelings from their, uh, you know, body language signals, you know, all, all kind of questions aimed at Uh, measuring how well people would do in a context in which they work, they will be negotiating. And what we found when we analyzed the results of the survey was something pretty striking. And in particular, we we saw that female teachers are between 20 and 38% less likely than their male counterpart to either have negotiated their pain in the past or to plan on doing so in the future. What does this mean? Does this mean that they are, let's say, initially less predisposed to negotiating because they pay a higher personal cost of negotiating? Or does it instead mean that their counterparts in their negotiation credibly commit to make life so unpleasant for them in case they negotiate that they are deterred from from doing so? Right, like the fact that they don't attempt the negotiation doesn't necessarily mean that there is anything uh, about them that is intrinsic. It could be that they rightly anticipate that it's not going to turn up well for them if they try that negotiation. This is a very important, but also very, very difficult to answer question. In order to get a sense of, you know, which one it is, is it that women just don't like negotiating or they feel uncomfortable doing so regardless of who they have in front of them? Or does the identity of the counterpart matter? In order to gain a little bit more understanding on this, what we did is we looked separately at the gender gap in the negotiating probability among teachers whose counterpart, namely the district superintendent, is a man and teachers whose counterpart is instead a woman. And we also did the same thing for pay. So we repeated our event studies that we talked about a few minutes ago, separately for teachers working under a male versus teachers working under a female superintendent. And what we found is that, A, the gender gap is almost uniquely driven by teachers who work under a male superintendent. Teachers who work under a female superintendent see no gender gap, which means that uh, male and female teachers earn the same. And also that the gender gap in negotiating, so the probability that people have negotiated in the past or the plan on doing so in the future, is only present for teachers who work under a male superintendent. Again, teachers who work under a female superintendent are equally likely to negotiate either in the past or in the future, whether they are a woman or a man. Okay, so we have two correlations there that seem to go in the same direction. The first one is that female teachers with female superintendents do better relative to having a male superintendent in that the gender wage gap closes, essentially. The second is that female teachers report that they are more willing to negotiate or that they have negotiated in the past when they encounter a female superintendent as opposed to a male superintendent. Again, that negotiating gap also closes. So that seems to suggest that there is something about female superintendents that makes them more approachable, perhaps towards everybody or maybe specifically towards female teachers. Is that correct? So the female superintendent is is the figure who is on the other side of the negotiations. 
That's correct. There's two figures that we think enter the negotiations at different points. One is the superintendent, the other one is the school principal. Unfortunately, in the survey, we can't leverage differences across people working under male versus female principals because we decided not to ask teachers about their school, school that they are employed in, for confidentiality purposes. We wanted to make sure that the teacher perceived the survey as confident. Uh, but at least, you know, when we uh, do our analysis separately by gender of the superintendent, this is exactly what we see. And we interpret these findings as suggesting uh, that negotiating environment and the identity of the other side of the negotiating table matter in terms of the likelihood that teachers engage in the negotiations to begin with, but also on the outcomes of the negotiation. And one other thing that sort of supports this conclusion is the fact that we don't see any differences in negotiating behavior depending on the individual characteristics of the teacher. So for example, we see that uh, female teachers tend to be a little bit less self-confident or confident in their abilities because we ask teachers to, to sort of self-rate their ability and in line with previous literature, we see that men are a little bit more likely than women to say that they are above average in terms of performance, but even conditioning on that, the, the gender gap doesn't close. We also see that while there are some differences in terms of the information that people have on other people negotiating or the salary that their colleagues are making, also controlling for that doesn't close the, the gender gap in negotiation. This seems to suggest that uh, it's not so much individual attributes that relate to the different, different behavior of male and female teachers as far as negotiating is concerned, but it's more something about the negotiating environment and potentially the identity of the counterpart. So I presume that the a majority of public school teachers will be female. They are more than 50%. What percentage of superintendents are female? So there is a big difference there. About 75% of public school teachers are women. And this share is even higher if we look at elementary school teachers. Typically, 80% of elementary school teachers are female. 60% of them are uh, female in, uh, in high school. When we look at the superintendents, only 20% of them are female. So there is a big difference. So one possibility, if, if our objective was to close that gender gap, I mean, at least empirically, one possibility would be to replace every male superintendent with a female superintendent, and then the wage gap will disappear. These results seem to suggest. Yes, that is correct. If we were to have more women at the top of the organization, superintendents, but you know, we see the same thing with principals. The, the majority of principals, in fact, are men. If we were to replace some of those men with some women, presumably we would see the gender gap in negotiations and also potentially in pay going. So in addition to showing that there is evidence that differences in bargaining or bargaining environments are explaining this gender gap, it is also helpful to show that other potential explanations do not seem to be explaining this gender wage gap because there are other things that are also correlated then it becomes a little bit more muddled, no? less, less clear. What are these alternative explanations and how do you account for them or, or control for them or, or rule them out empirically? 
That's a great point, and uh, it is particularly important to look at these alternative explanations in the context of our of our study, because since we wanted to ensure that the sur survey was confidential, we did not collect uh, the respondent's identity, and so we're not able to link the survey answers to the administrative records on, uh, on pay. And so we can't calculate what portion of the gender wage gap that we estimate in the administrative data is in fact due to differences in the likelihood of bargaining. So we feel like we have to look at alternative explanations. And after thinking hard about what other explanations would be most likely, we came up with three kind of broad sets of alternative explanations. One of them is, as I mentioned before, differences in teaching quality. The second one is differential propensity to move across different districts, that is to change employer. Each district uh, should be thought of as a, as a different employer. And the third explanation is a possibly differential demand for male versus female teachers. So regarding the first explanation, what we did is essentially we controlled as flexibly as we could for teacher value added, which remember is this test score based measure of teacher performance or teacher quality in our event studies. So we, among the, the many things that we account for when estimating the gender gap, we also account for just quality. And what we see is that a, controlling for quality does not close the when the gender wage gap almost by almost at all. So gender wage gap is essentially unchanged. We also see quite surprisingly that while there is a positive correlation between pay and teachers value added after Act 10, so after flexible pay is introduced for male teachers, the same cannot be said for female teachers. And what this means in practice is that the introduction of flexible pay also introduces a possibility for talented male teachers to earn more, but the same possibility is not there for, for females. So again, this is a suggestive evidence in support of that bargaining channel, because it is those who have the ability, the power to bargain, who seem benefiting from it, but only if they are also willing or able to bargain, that is, if they are male. That's exactly right. Yes, it is in line with, with uh, bargaining really uh, being what explains the gender gap. The second alternative explanation uh, that we look at is this, the hypothesis there is that uh, women might have higher costs associated with uh, changing employer, that is moving from one district to the other. Very often changing district involves either, you know, increasing potentially the commuting time or in some cases also having to relocate. Since the majority of our teachers are women, they might be potentially more likely to be second earners. The, the moving cost for them might be particularly high. And what this means or sort of a consequence of this is that they might have a harder time gathering outside offers, which A, would increase their power in the negotiation, or B, could provide them with, you know, a way to increase their pay by simply moving. And so we tried to test for this by looking at the moving rates and how they differ between male and female teachers before and after the passage of the reform. What we see is that men are slightly more likely than women throughout our time period to change district, but they did not become more likely to move after the reform. So the increase in moving rates was pretty much the same across male and female teachers. We do see that male teachers have a higher return from moving. So if we do an event study of wages around the time of a move, 
after the reform, so under flexible pay, we see that both male and female teachers experience an increase in pay, but the increase experienced by men is uh, significantly larger. Let, let me stop you here. In the eventuality in which we know for certain that teachers are negotiating their wage, which is when they move from employer to employer, we see that men benefit more from that possibility. That is right. So again, that is suggestive, correct? Of an important role for bargaining. Yes, what it doesn't tell us is that simply because women are less willing to move, that is why the gender gap arises. Instead, they point towards potentially important role for bargaining um, again. The third explanation that we look at is the idea that there might be schools that have an intrinsically higher demand for male teachers or you know, stronger preferences for having male teachers. We uh, try to remain as agnostic as we can as to why this might be the case. We just want to test for this as a possibility. And this is, of course, something that is very, very tricky and challenging to test because we don't observe this differential demand. So we try to proxy it as better as we can by identifying circumstances in which, you know, there might be, if there are schools with this higher demand for men, that's where we should see it. And in particular, we identify two instances. The first one are schools that in the years immediately prior to the passage of the reform, lost a significant portion of their male teaching work. So the idea is that, uh, you know, because those schools lost all these male teachers, they might want to replace them. And so they might have a higher, a higher demand for male teachers. And we contrast these schools with schools that instead gained men in the years immediately prior to attend. And what we see is uh, a difference in the gender gaps across these two groups of, of schools that is in line with our hypothesis in the sense that the gender gap seems to be larger in schools that lost men as opposed to schools that gained men. Again, the idea is that the former group might want to pay male teachers more because uh, they want to replace the men that they just lost. For gender balance. For gender balance or for diversity, for, for all these reasons. So we do see that the gender gap is larger among schools that lost men. But we also see that once we take this, this variable, so the share of men lost into account, the gender gap is essentially unchanged. And also, while we do see this difference that I just described among uh, schools that lost versus schools that gained men, the difference between the two is not significant. It's quite small and it's, it's indistinguishable from zero. So we interpret this as evidence that perhaps demand is not such a compelling explanation for um, the rise of a gender gap. The second instance that we identify where there might be a higher demand for male teachers is schools that enroll disproportionately quote-unquote, higher share of students who are boys. The reason why I'm using quotes is that uh, there isn't a lot of uh, variation in the share of students who are boys at the school level. It averages something that is very, very close to 50%, essentially for all schools. So what we do in order to find some variation is to look at the top 5% versus the bottom 5% of the distribution of the share of boys at the school level. And we look at the gender gap in schools that are at the bottom and at the top. And what we see, again, is something that is in line with our original hypothesis, which is that the gender gap is larger in schools that enroll more boys. The idea might be that perhaps male teachers are better suited as role models for boys. And so those schools might want to attract and also retain men a little bit more strongly than schools that instead enroll a smaller share of students who are boys. 
But again, once we control for the share of boys in our specification, we see that it, it essentially explains almost nothing of the gender gap at the baseline. So we, we kind of conclude that differences in demand are probably unlikely to explain uh, the gender gap that we need in our baseline specifications. So a gender gap appears. It seems there are patterns that you find in the data that in several ways, both through the interaction with the gender of the superintendent, through the survey questions, seem to point very strongly towards bargaining. And also other potential explanations don't seem to be explaining any patterns in the data. So obviously seems very compelling. I am trying to understand what the main contribution of the paper is. So when I do that, I tend to go to the title because typically the title has everything that you need to know about the paper distilled in a few words. So obviously the title says flexible wages bargaining and the gender gap. This is obviously not the first paper on the on the gender gap, but the gender gap, as you said, is a very important topic. We need to understand it well. You have given very compelling evidence of this bargaining channel. It is a little bit suggestive and indirect, but the question there will be, well, what alternative is there with real life data? No? Like in, a, in experiments, we can control some things, but then the question is, how does this extrapolate to explain what we care about, which is the real world here. This is obviously the real world, especially for the Wisconsin teachers, right? So, and, and also it's an industry that employs lots of people. The last thing is flexible wages. And I am trying to understand what the additional contribution is in the paper from having the sudden introduction of these flexible wages. And, and this is for the following reason. As we said earlier, so clearly you are not going to have a legislation or collective bargaining agreements specifying that women should be paid less than men, at least not nowadays in, in the countries in which we live. So clearly there's not going to be a gender gap under rigid wages. The gender gap can only appear under flexible wages. So flexible wages are a necessary condition to have any gender gap in the same sense that to have a gender wage gap being employed is also a necessary condition, but it's kind of, in some sense, understood. So seeing how quickly the gender gap emerges after the switch is, is interesting. But imagine that we had data only from 2012 onwards, and we still had the rich array of controls, uh, value added, and everything else that you have in your data we wouldn't be able to reach essentially the same conclusion. Wouldn't the paper be as good? Because we still have a, a gender gap. We can rule out alternative explanations. We have evidence in favor of the bargaining channel. Does this natural experiment add so much to the paper? And that is not, of course, to diminish the value of the paper. As I said, the bargaining channel is, is, is a really important, really interesting, but... While this adds a lot of flavor and color, essentially the paper will be as good without it. Do you disagree? I think that there is something to be learned about the fact that it's whenever flexible pay is introduced that you see the gender gap arising and it's almost immediately after flexible pay is introduced that you see the gender gap arising. I guess if you only had information on the years following the reform, you could still somehow worry about 
there being something else at the district level that could be driving the fact that women earn less than men. Whereas uh, what is nice about this quasi-exogenous timing of introduction of flexible pay is that flexible pay is literally the only thing that is changing that particular point in time in the district. So I think this helps us pin down a little bit more clearly what the introduction of flexible pay does to the gender gap. And I think more broadly, you know, doing a, a step beyond and looking a little bit more at the broad picture and at what the contribution of, you know, looking at an instance where there is flexible pay is, is the fact that here we're working with a set of workers who have been under rigid pay for a very long period of time, or essentially, you know, since we can measure wage, I, I would say. And it's also a set of workers that are majority women, which is different from other types of professions. So, you know, there could be reasons for believing that because we have been doing things in a very rigid way for many, many years, and because the majority of these uh, workers are women, we wouldn't necessarily, I mean, I would have not necessarily expected a gender gap to arise in a context like this one. And I think it's pretty interesting to notice that instead, it only takes five years for a pretty sizable gender gap to arise. And if we look at the pattern of the gender gap, it, it looks like something that is increasing over time. Obviously, because of the, the data that we have available, we can only look uh, up to five years out after the introduction of flexible pay. But I suspect that if nothing else changes, as we go on, the gender gap may end up growing. So I think this is, um, it was not obvious, let's say, to me when I started working on this project. And I think it's because of the, the particular type of occupation and sector uh, that we're looking at here. So something that you did not mention that I'm wondering now is whether the fact that flexible wages was unexpected implies that these workers did not sort into that profession on the basis of the ability to bargain. In other words, if we compare the gender gap among CEOs, there are not so many female CEOs, but there are, there are some, but these CEOs are clearly not representative of the average female because they have gone through a lot of hurdles to get there. And it is possible that among that population of CEOs, there are no, there are no differences in their willingness or perceptions or, or how they are treated on the other side by their bargaining counterparts. But here, the female teachers did not anticipate that they will have to bargain for their wages. And therefore, it's not a subset of, of females who ended up taking the jobs. I mean, presumably, teaching in public school is a vocation. So probably that was not like a, that would not be today a huge consideration, but in the margin, it may have some, some effect. That is correct. And, uh, you know, it could still be, even if, as you are uh, correctly pointing out, the reform was unexpected. So it's unlikely that people had started to sort into the profession, um, kind of anticipating the ch this change in uh, the way that pay would be, would be set. It is still possible that after the reform passed, teachers started to sort in and out of the profession, depending on their preferences for, for bargaining or for flexible pay. We have looked at differential sorting in and out of the profession for male and female teachers. We don't see any evidence that suggests that women were less, less likely to enter the profession or uh, more likely to exit following uh, the introduction of flexible pay. 
And if anything, uh, our results seem to mostly come from people who already were in the profession to begin with. And so they had not sorted into the profession based on uh, the presence of flexible pay. So on the pool of what we call the incumbents throughout the paper. Our results are very much robust with just looking at those teachers. However, you know, one thing that should be kept in mind is that does, this doesn't mean that that pool of teachers who we call the incumbents are, you know, representative of the population. They're still teachers who probably selected into the profession on the basis of their preference for kind of more rigid pay or, you know, more job security, kind of the, the, the attributes of the teaching job as we typically uh, know them. Barbara, thank you for coming to the program. Thank you very much for having me. My guest today was Barbara Biasi. My name is Jordi Vanessi Vidal, and this is the Visible Hand podcast. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to some of the papers that we discussed. The introductory music was selected by Aitana Blanesiso, and the episode was produced by Anderson Tan.